0: An Honorable Profession is brought to you by OpenCounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. Check out OpenCounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors check out some of our past episodes with guests like Washington State Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib, Emily Kane of Emily's List, Stephen Reed, the first African-American mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, and dozens of amazing leaders at the state and local level. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. Today, on An Honorable Profession, I'm speaking with Georgia State Senator Jen Jordan. Jen made national headlines with a deeply personal speech on the floor of the State Senate about her experiences with pregnancy and miscarriage and the impacts of anti-choice legislation on women. Since then, she's fought for more transparency in government, better cybersecurity, and more opportunity for the residents of her state. Now, as her state's governor ignores the pleas from health experts to not lift the restrictions needed to fight the coronavirus, she's again fighting for the lives of her residents. We talked about all this, her journey from an impoverished childhood in rural Georgia to becoming one of the state's leading lawyers with a bright political future. She's one to watch. Jen Jordan, Georgia State Senator, welcome to An Honorable Profession.
1: Thank you so much for having me, really appreciate it.
0: So, let's just start uh, with the current news. Your state has been in the news a lot lately because uh, your governor's decided to go in a different direction than health advisors and even the president uh, want him to go. How are things going in Georgia, and um, what kind of role can you do you play in a in a moment like this?
1: Yeah, um obviously, things aren't going that great um, and it's it's difficult because. You know, the governor is the executive of the state and is making a lot of uh, the decisions when it comes to people's um, lives and, and their health. And um, so it's been kind of a difficult time because, you know, all of us are home. Um, and in the state Senate, we were, there were a few members of the state Senate that were positive for COVID-19. So um, the, the entire Georgia General Assembly ended up having to quarantine for 14 days. Um, you know, right after we uh, approved the governor's emergency powers. Um, so we've kind of, you know, we've been home like everybody else. But I'll tell you the biggest thing that I see kind of as, as my role, especially for my constituents, is just really trying to get information out there and and solid information, too. Um, people are scared. They want to know what's going on. Um, and they, they want to know what the data is. And, um, and so it's been really important to me, you know, to, to basically kind of be a check on the governor to some extent, there's, he's represented certain data, you know, in a way that can be misleading. And, um, you know, I I think for me, it's, it's about kind of just shining a light on that um, and and making people aware that he might not be making the best decisions um, in terms of, you know, the public health directives but that people individually can make decisions to still stay home um, and protect themselves and others.
0: And, yeah, can you talk a little bit of that experience about what it's like to sort of be in quarantine? You have two kids. You're uh, you're trying to balance all this in a very heated, uh, difficult environment. Sort of what's, what's been your day like? Is it just uh, endless Zoom calls and uh, – and trying to get that data out there and and how receptive have people been to it
1: it's a little weird I mean it's um, you know you've got your kids, so you've got to get them going and on their virtual schools and then all the zoom calls with whether it's school systems or county commissioners or mayors, um, really just trying to stay as connected as possible, and really, it is about you know everybody really wants the same thing, which is to make sure that we have the best data possible and that we're making the best decisions, you know, based on the data. Um, and so all of the calls I've had, whether it's with hospitals or hospital system, um, you know, doctors and the like, that's, you know, everybody's kind of been singing from the same, you know, songbook with respect to that. Um, but in terms of the day itself, I mean, it's tough. I mean, you know, I've got dogs and... <laughs> you know, kids in the background and, um, you know, and you kind of go in and out because you're not on a, a real set schedule. It's like, what day is it? And where are we? And, um, you know, there is no normalcy right now. And it, it's just one of those things we're having to wait too. I mean, we're so dependent um, on the governor right now and the information that, that his office is willing um, to give or to release. And, then just trying to take the time to really kind of delve into it and see kind of where the issues are. Um, you know, for a long time, they weren't releasing anything on the long-term nursing facilities here, the nursing homes. Um, and we're, you know, being really aggressive about that. I mean, now we know that probably over half the deaths in the state of Georgia um, are of, you know, residents from nursing homes. And so it's that kind of thing where you have to kind of keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, Even if you use social media, I mean, it's not the most fun just to spend your day rage tweeting. But um, every now and then it gets some results. So, you know, it's weird times for sure, right?
0: It is. (laughs) That it is. That it is. I have an eight-year-old, a five-year-old and a puppy at home. And um, what I've told everyone, the main thing I've learned is that, if you give a five-year-old a captive audience, they can talk for about 18 hours straight. Um, and so it's just my – it's amazing. Just my son just – he just talks all day, every day, no matter no matter what's going on in our house. <laughs>
1: uh, they're like attention black hole. They just want <laughs> attention, and they want you to be paying attention to them all the time. All and, day. You know, all day. It is exhausting. The younger the children are – the tireder parents tend to be because it's just, it's a lot right now. So, you
0: know. It absolutely is. And then in terms of uh, your state in some ways as a microcosm for some of the divides we see in the country between party and urban and rural, I know you've done a lot to try to break down those divides, um, but this this virus and specifically your governor's uh, approach to it, expose it or may, may drive even bigger wedges. What do you see in terms of how your state's going to respond politically in this election coming up um, to the decisions that are made around coronavirus and, and a whole host of other issues?
1: Look, I think people are paying attention in part because they're kind of, you know, captured right now. I mean, Um, That's why the president's press conferences were getting such high ratings. I mean, there there was really such a kind of a hunger for people just to understand or know what was what was happening in the country and then even in the state. Um, But you're right. Georgia and and kind of what we're going through really kind of reveals a lot of the stuff we already knew um, in terms of the disparate um, ability for black Georgians to access health care. In the state, um, and especially black Georgians that live in rural Georgia. Um, you know, we have not invested in healthcare infrastructure here. We haven't expanded um, Medicaid at all. And it's one of those things where you would think and you would hope that someone seeing this or looking at this experience. Um, would then guide public policy in a way to make sure this, this couldn't happen in the future. But we're not seeing that. I mean, the governor could expand Medicaid today. I mean, he has the ability to do that. Um, and he has chosen not to do that and instead has decided to reopen the state, even though we know that, um, we don't meet any of the criteria laid out by the white house or, or by any of the public health officials. So, um, You know, there's going to be a lot written and a lot said about this crisis, but particularly Georgia and this crisis and how it really just revealed um, a lot of the fault lines that we already knew were there. But politically, now this is interesting, um, today we crossed the line for um, a million absentee ballot applications. Um, And to, to understand just how significant that is, I think in the 2016 election, primary election, maybe there were 25,000 absentee ballots cast. Um, So I do think people are paying attention, and I think they're going to hold people accountable, um, you know, one way or the other.
0: Can you talk, I mean, uh, certainly we all saw really concerning voter suppression uh, in Georgia in the last election. Um, Are we going to have to Are are we looking at similar dynamics uh, in this election and then sort of what are you and your colleagues doing to try to protect people's right to vote?
1: So I think one of the biggest things is that we're pushing for folks to, to vote by mail. I mean, I am um, in part because of public health concerns. Um, But also, you know, once somebody gets their absentee ballot in, it's in and um, you know, nothing's going to stop you, right? Weather or work or kids or sickness or whatever. Once you get that ballot in, you know, you've got, you've got a ballot cast there. So we've been pushing that. Um, But, you know, they're using the crisis. They meaning, you know, a lot of Republicans um, are using the crisis as a way to, to, you know, to try to push dates back, confuse people um, and, you know, we've just got to be very clear in terms of the messaging we send out to our constituents, um, no matter what party they belong to, that, you know, this is how you vote. This is the easiest way to vote. Um, and if you have any questions, you know, we have very clear lines of communication with respect to that. So, you know, the the, the best thing probably though, Ryan, is that we have so many pending federal lawsuits that came out of all of the incompetence, et cetera, um, from 2018, that, you know, it really, it's interesting when you have a federal judge looking over someone's shoulder, um, you know, they tend to, to act a little bit better. So, um, you know, the fact of the litigation in and of itself, I think is really going to help make sure that um a lot of the the bad stuff that that's happened before, you know, doesn't doesn't happen again. At least not this cycle.
0: Okay. Well, good. And then hopefully um the state swings and uh, really comprehensive uh elect- election reform and protections uh you can you can implement them and uh and protect all your all the voters in the state of Georgia.
1: Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. I mean, just just to try to make it easier to vote for everybody um, and then you know maybe we can have an actual contest of ideas and policy um, that'd be that'd be amazing
0: <laughs> shocking that's a controversial idea in 2020
1: controversial <laughs> very controversial
0: so you were just eloquently talking about some of the health disparities uh, uh, in Georgia and in reading about you one of the things that really struck me was you argue a lot on data and law and and we'll talk about your experience there but you also um bring to bear your personal experience being raised by a single mom uh in rural georgia and can you talk a little bit about your path and how it informs you know how you approach your job
1: yeah i think it it in some ways, it just, it makes you more empathetic, but it also gives you a basis of knowledge, right? Like, so for example, the the governor invoked Tammy the hairdresser as one reason why he wanted to, you know, uh, reopen the hair salons because Tammy was going to lose her car or something. Um, so I don't know if Tammy exists or not, but... My whole thing is, okay, well, then why don't you make it where Tammy can access unemployment benefits because she's an independent contractor? Why aren't you making sure she has her stimulus money? Um, Why aren't we as a state helping Tammy in other ways um, other than making her have to choose between, you know, paying her bills and her health? Oh, yeah, and Tammy probably doesn't have health insurance either because she can't afford it. Um, so if Tammy gets sick, then Tammy ends up, you know, in the hospital system, um, can't afford, you know, the care she's getting, um, and then that's going to result, in, you know, even more issues economically for her or health-wise. So it's it's kind of this thing where if you've never been there and you don't understand actually what's happening um, in, in a household or with people that are dealing with these kind of economic issues. Um, it's easy probably just not to to get it, right? Like you think, oh, well, Tammy can go and now work. And it's like, that's just not, that's really not what we should be doing to people, especially low-wage workers um, who really are just struggling to get by. We really should be focused on policy that's going to support them through this time so that, that when we're ready, in terms of the data, um, that they can open their businesses and they can do it in a way that that they can ensure their customers um that you know they can be healthy, but then also make sure that they're protecting themselves too, and so you know it's just a really awful situation to put these folks in um to have to make these decisions, but I know that because my mom didn't have health insurance she couldn't afford it um and you know, and I know she was an independent contractor. And I know that if this happened to her, we would be in a horrible situation, you know. Um, And I would hate if she would have had to make the decision like that to kind of endanger her life, herself, and also her children, um, just because the governor of the state wasn't really listening to public health officials.
0: Yeah, I mean, elevating the voice. Of people who so, obvious, so often aren't heard in the system, and their real life experience is just—it's um, just vital to add context. It's so much easier when it's just like these binary choices: work, don't work. But actually, it's—you know—human beings are very complicated. And I think you do an, an extraordinary job of telling that telling that story. Can you?
1: Some people just don't know, right, Ryan? Like, like if you if you've never been an independent contractor, if you've never, a lot of folks just say, well, go get unemployment or go do this or go do that, not understanding that some of these programs aren't accessible to certain workers, right? Um, And it's just kind of one of these things where even, you know, elected officials don't get that. Um, And so we need to be more cognizant. Um, about kind of the policy decisions we're making and the impact that they that they really do have on ordinary Georgians.
0: When did it occur to you that there was a role in of politics and government in people's lives that 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 you decided that was a path for you. You know, you you, you grew up daughter of a hairdresser, you worked your way through th- college with three different jobs. What what made Politics and policy jump out at you as a as a place where you wanted to to spend your time and talent.
1: So the, the biggest thing for me is that when I look back, kind of at my life, um, nobody does anything by themselves. And at every kind of juncture of my life, no matter how hard it was, I was I was getting some kind of assistance um, due to. Uh, a policy decision um, that had been made by elected officials, whether it's um, getting free lunch and breakfast, you know, as a child, uh, Section 8 housing, whether it was, um, you know, for us in Georgia, we have something called the Hope Scholarship. And it was originally passed and said, you know, if you get a B, if you can keep a B average, you know, you can have your tuition covered. And I was part of that first class of, of kids who were able to get that. And, um, so it kind of opened my eyes and the door to college, because before I hadn't really thought about it that much, um, and made it something that was accessible to me. And so, like, every step of the way, right, or stu- federal student loans, and in terms of keeping the interest rates lower, it's, it's all this stuff that, if if you really kind of think about your life and kind of how we go about things, um, really public policy, and like I said, the decisions that our elected officials make can have significant impact on people's lives for good and bad. And um, so that's why it was important to me because it's one of those things where it's like, I've been given a lot and I've been incredibly lucky, um, but none of it would have been possible unless there were, unless those Democrats weren't passing those laws when they did and weren't pushing for certain, you know, public policy, um, you know, initiatives when they did. And so it's kind of a a little bit of a way of pay it forward kind of thing. Um, But, you know, if we're not advocating for it, especially coming from a place of knowledge and and also gratefulness, um, then I'm not sure, you know, who will. So that's kind of what kind of pushed me in that area because I just understood kind of the impact that it' had on my life personally
0: and it's amazing when you think about it because you know you we the few stories of uh, people abusing unemployment or public housing vouchers or other things get such headlines, but like you're a perfect example of a of a Amazing return on investment. So, I it's it's I I think I agree uh, with your gratitude, but also, um, you know, the the state of Georgia got got a lot back for a relatively small amount of preventative uh, investment to get to give you the opportunity, and it's that's a story that doesn't get told enough. I don't think when we're when we're talking about these issues.
1: No, and especially rural Georgia and the public education system. I mean, it is really the lifeline for kids. Um, You know, I think things have changed a little bit because of the access, you know, the internet's changed people's ability to kind of see outside of their own world a little bit. So that's been helpful. It kind of has broadened a lot of kids' horizons, I should say. Um, But before that, if you you know, if you never left where you were born or came from and didn't have family outside of a, a certain county in Georgia, didn't have money or means, I mean, that that's all you knew. And so, you know, when you don't have anyone modeling certain behavior or you've never known anybody go to college or you never knew a lawyer or, you know, anything like that, it's very hard, I think, for for kids to to kind of say, well, that's what I want to do or or that you know that's the path I'm going to take, um, but for a lot of kids in these situations or in these school districts, the public education system really is kind of their lifeline um, and and their way out of poverty. I mean, and and they can stay in rural Georgia. I'm not saying that they you know, have to get out of rural Georgia not to to be full, poor to escape poverty, um, but definitely it is it is their way to actually make a better life for themselves which is kind of part of it, right? What you were talking about, the amazing return. I mean, it's kind of the investment in public education, I mean, returns, you know, 20-fold what we put into it. Um, Because then, you know, kids get good jobs, they pay taxes, you know, they don't stress the judicial system or the prison system. And, you know, it, it, whether you look at it from a moral place that it's the right thing to do and it's what we should be doing, um, you know, for people, or you look at it just from a clear economic data position, you know, um, I mean, clearly, the more we put into public education on the front end and the, the earlier we can start doing that and in, um, in investing in these kids, I mean, the returns, you know, are just astronomical.
0: I couldn't agree more. So in terms of... Uh talked about seeing new opportunities. Take us back to 2016, 2017. You're a practicing lawyer with your family. You've got a lot of professional accolades, trying interesting cases. Um, What made you decide to run for office? And tell me about that first decision to go out and start knocking on doors and putting your name on a ballot.
1: Yeah, so I've always been political in the sense I've been really interested in public policy, but I never necessarily wanted to run myself um, because I loved my job. I love my law firm and life was good. Right. Um, but I had a case where an 18 year old girl was sexually assaulted um, in a dental office. And, you know, long story short, we get to the Georgia Supreme court and um, I'm arguing the case and, you know, the Supreme court members come out and they're all men and the questions that they asked really reflected kind of a lack of understanding. Um, you know, uh, in terms of sexual assault, you know, what women go through the resulting trauma, whatever it is, I mean, just a real lack of understanding, um, in part because there, there was a lack of diversity on the bench and, um, a place of knowing right a place of knowledge because none of them were women you know they didn't even have women discussing the case with them um and i just knew from the questions that it wasn't going to go well and then um you know we in fact lost the case at the georgia supreme court and um, i had to call my client and tell her that was it and you know she was devastated and um, it was at that point in time that i was like you know what we have to have more women um, in office. We have to have more women in the room when these policy decisions are being made or when laws are being drafted um, or just when the conversations are happening, partly because it's, it offers a different voice um, and an important voice. So that's when I was like, you know, first opportunity, I'm going to, I'm going to run for something. (laughs) And um, Hunter Hill, the Republican state senator at the time, announced and said he was going to run for governor. And I was like, all right, well, better do it. I guess this is guess this is my sign. And people told me I was crazy because it was a Republican state Senate district and had been drawn to be when the lines were drawn, I think, in 2012, had been drawn to be, I think, a 58, 59 percent performing Republican district. Um, so, you know, it was funny. It was like when I talked to people that were friendly to me and I would tell them that I was running, you know, it was almost that voice that people have when they hear you have cancer or something. They're like, oh, well, that's (laughs) nice, you know, good for you. Or, and, and it was like, no, there's something more going on here. Um, and so then we ended up flipping the seat, which ended up taking the supermajority away from the Republicans in the state Senate. And um, kind of look at my race, and that was the end of 2017, as kind of the canary in the coal mine for what was happening in Georgia in terms of um, the transition, especially in the Atlanta suburbs, and, um, and kind of the larger role and the louder voice um, that women were starting to have um, when it came to kind of these local or state um, you know, elections. So, you know, it's it's fascinating looking back at it because, you know, no one thought we could do it, and then we did it. And really we were just kind of the precursor. We were like the appetizer for, for Stacey Abrams and the rest of them. So, um, you know, but you could see it happening even then.
0: Let's hope, uh, yeah, let's hope you were the appetizer and now there's a really big meal plus dessert cherry on top coming in in the future elections uh, (laughs) in your state, you talked about the importance of bringing that voice after that crazy ruling in the case you had. And you did it on the HB 481 vote where you got up on the floor of the state Senate and gave a really personal speech about your experiences with pregnancies and miscarriages and the the impact that pregnancy has on women's lives it was uh it got you a lot of national attention and a huge amount of, of appreciation how did you decide that that was the right time to share your to share your experience and uh, were you nervous what was walk us through what that was like making that decision to to bring your personal experience to the floor of the state senate
1: yeah, I really didn't decide um, to do it until we were about halfway through with the debate on the bill. Um, I had two different versions of the speech I was going to give, um, one with the personal information and one without, um, you know, because I just didn't know. Um, no one had had read it except for my husband. Um, and the only reason I let him read it was because I thought that, I mean, it's his life experience as well, and I felt like he needed to, to kind of know <laughs> what I was going <laughs> to say, um, you know. And the only words of advice he gave to me was that um, I didn't, I didn't owe anybody, you know, that information, um, and for me not to feel like I had to do it. So, uh, you know, so I had two different versions and. I was sitting there, and it was just a really frustrating few hours because the debate was kind of the same back and forth. You know, Republicans would say one thing, Democrats would say another. Um, And it was just maddening because there didn't seem to be...
0: And and just for the and just for the for the background of our listeners, so the bill was a was a heartbeat quote unquote heartbeat bill that is being used as a way to challenge Roe v. Wade and uh, choice uh, in the for for not only Georgia but for the whole country, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's effectively an abortion ban. It it says you know I mean when most people don't even know they're pregnant. You know, you can't get an abortion, um, period. So, um, and there are a couple of exceptions, but even those are, you know, a little extreme. So, um, you know, we were one of the, the, the states to do it, um, surprisingly to me, I mean, because normally, or at least the last governor was able to kind of sideline a lot of those social um, really socially divisive kind of back and forth, you know, debates, but this governor was pushing it. And so, you know, when you have the governor of the state pushing um, certain legislation, you know, it gets on the floor. And so, you know, we were debating it and it was all men, you know, that got up to speak for it on the Republican side, except for the the, the one woman Republican sponsor who was the only Republican woman in the chamber and, um, you know, it just was a real lack of of understanding of, of what all of this meant for women. And then also healthcare providers. Um, so it just felt like it was necessary. And, you know, it was kind of like the, the light just went on for me and I said, you know, this, this is the right time to do this. And, you know, maybe maybe I can change one person's mind or maybe one person will take a walk on the boat or, you know, something. Um, because it really felt like folks needed to understand what it really means to people on a very personal level and not just kind of the the normal rhetoric you hear on both sides. Um, so, you know, that's why I did it and made the decision kind of on the spot and, um, you know by the time i got up there i was pretty resolved <laughs> so you know it really i wasn't really that nervous um but but it was a surreal experience talking about things you don't want to talk about um you know in front of you know the state senate um you know it w- it was a really bizarre kind of experience in that way
0: and and talk a little bit about the reaction you've you've gotten from both constituents and then uh what was the what was the Republican you know your Republican peers uh response to it.
1: Interestingly enough well they all voted for the bill which in some ways was um it felt personal, you know, mm-hmm. because there there are Republicans that I know and like and respect and I know that they're good bright people um and you can even be someone who is not necessarily, you know, pro-choice and still think that there are significant problems with the bill. So, I mean, th- there was a way to vote against it, let me say that, right. um, and not not really have your pro-life bona fides impeached. Um, but so that, that felt really personal afterwards. But, um, you know, I had a lot of folks say to me, you know, well, wow, you know, I think that was really powerful. And I said, well, it didn't change any votes. And the response basically was, but I think it may in the future change some hearts. So, you know, I think it it was a gut check for people. I don't, it wasn't going to change anything at that moment because it had become such a team kind of thing, like, you know, we're all going to vote for it. Or, and, um, but I was hoping just to kind of reframe the issue for the future so that maybe in the future if this came up, we could keep more bills like this kind of from coming to the floor and getting passed. So um that was the Republican, you know, senators. And then I was really surprised at kind of the outpouring of support from my constituents and also from women around the country. You know, it's it really is something that every woman has had every woman has a story one way or the other. And, um, you know, I think a lot of women always feel like no one's really speaking for them. And so, you know, I think in a lot of ways, people or women felt like finally someone was kind of standing up, um, and, and speaking for them in a way that really reflected their own experiences.
0: I yeah, I think it's incredibly powerful. Um there's a is it Atlanta magazine that did a profile of you uh, after the after the speech and it, it not only I think tells a compelling story of your uh experience, but also the reaction that you get out in public from people um, specifically women, uh, for being their voice. Uh I encourage folks to go out and 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 read it. So you talked about the future, and one of the things that happen, has happened because of your the strong stance you've taken on a number of issues in the state and then also that speech uh, is your name has been brought up uh, to run for the, the U.S. Senate and other positions. How are you thinking about your political future and where you can have a best impact, and what does that look like?
1: I'm not entirely sure right now. I'll tell you that I'm— um, had a lot of, obviously, during quarantine, you have a lot of time to think about things. Um, and also kind of seeing the impact of what, you know, this this virus is having on the state. Um, you know, what are, what are the opportunities in terms of public policy? Um, policies that we could push um, that maybe people would be more amenable to right now because of the crisis. Um, and trying to identify those and maybe try to get them pushed, pushed through, you know, if not this session, the next session. Um, and I think that the policy is is what might guide my decision-making kind of in the future. You know, what office, is it the state senate, staying in the state senate, is that the best choice in terms of, you know, the things I want to see happen for the state? Or is there another office where I think that I could, um, you know, really do some good? So... You know, it's kind of an open question right now, because, you know, I think we're in such a weird place because of COVID that, you know, I think we're just going to have to step back and look around and, and reassess once we've got to come out of it, or at least come out of it to a point where, you know, we're not just having to stay in our homes.
0: Right. It just get a little bit out of the crisis and try to get some perspective on on where things go.
1: Yeah. Where where do things go from now? Like who did a good job and who didn't, right? Like Yeah. Be- because a lot of the time you don't necessarily want to run for something if somebody's doing a good job. I mean, if somebody's delivering for, you know, their constituents or for the people, then you know, you can kind of step back a little bit. But, you know, if if there's been a once we kind of reassess or 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 able to assess kind of what happened here, um and, you know, if there was leadership or if there wasn't, I mean, I think that's when we're going to see if, if there might be some opportunities or not.
0: That makes sense. Well, I, for my two cents from way out here in California, I think it'd, it'd be wonderful to have your voice and the way that you can talk about ex- your experience and others' experience um, that's also rooted in policy uh at, at the statewide or national level, it'd be it'd be a benefit not only to the people of Georgia but to the to the whole country. So hope you uh, hope during all this quarantine you 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 have some time to to think a, uh, a little bit more about it.
1: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that.
0: Thank you for joining us. Please stay safe. I uh, hope your family stays safe and healthy. And uh, and we look forward to uh, to seeing you back at. At a New Deal conference, hopefully in person uh, sometime soon, uh, where we can all try to figure out what this path is for policy going forward to, to better help our, our communities in the future.
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, this has almost been like a stress test, right? And I think it's just revealing a lot of the areas that, you know, that we really need to pay attention to in the future. So, you know, if we look at it from a glass half full perspective, you know, maybe this this really is going to open up some opportunities to do some good.
0: I agree. I mean, I think yeah, we're going to have more crises, public health, environment, economic, you know, in our future, and this has shown a lot of weaknesses in the system that that need that need investment now. Uh, so the so the costs will be lower, and uh, the next time next time something like this comes around,
1: absolutely. Well, stay safe.
0: Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.